0: Hey guys, Riley here. Thanks for checking out this episode of Flock of Seagulls. You're in for a treat, but just before we get started, I wanted to give a big old shout out to one of our, I'd call them a sister podcast, Over the Kill. The guys there sort of go and examine the lives of... Ah, I'll just let them say it. Hi, this is Dan from the Over the Kill podcast. And this is Pete. And I've got a question for you, Pete. What did Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Hanks... And Bruce Willis all have in common. Uh, I'm not allowed within 200 feet of any of them anymore. What? Wait, no, that's not what I was thinking of. They're all old action stars. Not Tom Hanks. Okay, the guy's the star of Saving Private Ryan. He's an action star. Mm, Sleepless in Seattle. Okay, Road to Perdition. Toy Story. Apollo 13. Whatever. Wait, was that an action film? Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Like all old action stars, Tom Hanks' career has changed as he's aged. And gotten flabbier. And gotten flabbier. Each week on Over the Kill, we'll talk about a different actor and determine whether they've aged gracefully or gone over the kill. If that sounds like your kind of thing, check out Over the Kill on iTunes.
1: All right, on this week of Flock of Seagals, we tackle belly of the beast to determine once and for all,
0: does Steven
1: Seagal
2: like wire stunts?
1: So on this episode, we have, as always, myself, Michael.
0: And next to me, we have... Hey, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of the of Galls. It's Riley. And we've got a special guest today, Michael. Woo! Oh, my goodness. It is Dan. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good. My
2: name's uh, Daniel. Daniel Link. I'm an old buddy of Riley's. Uh, I'm working on a podcast of my own right now, uh, horror-centric that's tentatively titled Outside of a Dream. Uh, I'm just getting some little sit down in-house podcast recording experience tonight. I like that title. Yeah. It, Good. It's actually a Mulholland Drive reference. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know the, the scene, like the two guys in the diner? Like, yes.
1: And you're scared. I can't even tell you how yeah. scared you are. Oh, yeah. like
2: in that scene, uh, I think Patrick Schiffler is the actor's name. Uh, he was also in the new Twin Peaks. Mm. Uh, he says, like, I never want to see that face outside of a dream. And so that's right.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: So there's an origin story for my podcast title on a different
0: podcast. So, can you give us any insider info about what your podcast is going to be about? Okay.
2: So, it is uh, horror centric. Like, I want to focus on new horror cinema, specifically largely independent horror movies that have been put out since 2010. While I don't want to dismiss like bigger budget, like kind of Hollywood studio horror stuff, because there have been a lot of good. Horror movies of that style. Alien was one of them. Once upon a time, and I adore that movie. But in the last few years or so, there's been an absolute renaissance of horror from like smaller filmmakers, and then you get like great auteur like horror movies with very defined messages, very different styles of horror. Stuff like The Babadook, The Witch. It follows Uh, most famously this year Jordan Peele's directorial debut Get Out, and so Outside of a Dream aims to. Critically analyze this new wave of horror movies. Because, like, this is a good time to be talking about horror. It's probably the strongest decade for this genre since the 70s when you had a lot of, like, I'm doing scare quotes here, like, new cinema directors, like, buying their trade and, like, doing, like, really cool stuff with horror. It's like coming back around to that again. And, but I don't want to be too nerdy about it either. Like, I do want to talk about why horror is appealing to people who aren't normally interested in that genre because they might be a little bit spooked off to it. And I want to talk about like the different types of horror, what scares some people, how that's different from what scares another person, because it varies from person to person. But I want like like a horror podcast for the lay person who maybe has some curiosity in it while also getting into like the critical theory and psychology of horror and like actually like how I view it as a very therapeutic genre. And so, yeah, I'm putting together some demo episodes of that, getting a good flow going and hopefully within a month, I'll have those put out week by week. Yeah.
0: That's dope. Let's get into Belly of the Beast because, oh my God, Dan, you could not have picked a better episode to come in on. Oh, this movie. <laughs> guys! It mm. So
2: I'm going to begin as abruptly as that movie begins. It just begins. There's like an <laughs> establishing shot of a city in Thailand, and then it just cuts to Steven Seagal's character, and Byron Mann's character, like, sitting in a room. There's no cool establishing shot. There's no pan. There's no zoom in or anything. No elevator shot. It's just we have cut to these two characters sitting at a table, listening to a conversation. And just, like, it is the most very abrupt. Like, I get the sense of this movie. Like, we were talking about Maholland Drive earlier. (laughs) Maholland Drive. No, No, which is filmed largely as, like, a TV pilot. But then ABC didn't want it. I was
0: just going to. See, I was going to bring this up later. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was filmed as a TV pilot, but then like ABC rejected it, and then so Lynch filmed some additional material, recontextualized a lot of the stuff, and turned it into a movie. This really does feel like a TV pilot that, like, there's a lot of like TV level
0: cinematography, music in the background. It that, feels like the extended episode opener of a TV series, like The Blacklist, done in the '90s. Because even down to the credits flash over top of the screen for like the first four and a half minutes Mm -hmm. of like just producer after producer after producer after dead producer after producer. This begins with
2: Steve balls character Hopper and his buddy played by Byron Mann. Byron Mann, I have a special fondness for. Uh, He's a Chinese American actor you may remember as Ryu in the fantastic Street Fighter movie from the 90s. Uh, Raul Julia's final role is <laughs> M. Bison. Yeah. I also really like him in the video game Sleeping Dogs, which mm. is basically GTA. But what if you're an undercover cop in Hong Kong and he plays your handler? So basically, think Mark Wahlberg's role in The Departed. And he lent his. Don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> and he lends both his face and his voice to that role. Yeah, Steven Seagal is Jake Hopper, CIA agent at the time of the 1994 beginning for that movie, and Byron Mann is his pal Cinti, and they're sitting in on some kind of deal with
0: shady characters. They're not just sitting in on, they're making a deal with shady characters as the CIA. Yeah, Yeah. it's just like, you know, we uh,
1: had to wait about 24 seconds before... The Steven Seagal, am I or aren't I a part of the CIA enigma? (laughs) Is immediately, it it, it might be that I think it might be the first line in the entire film.
0: Yeah, I think there is going to be at some point Google will do an experiment of like deep neural learning on Steven Seagal films and just if it can create a Steven Seagal script because it is so similar every single time, Mm. which makes actually Belly of the Beast fairly unique for its third act twist, which is. One magic is real. And if you believe hard enough, everything you want can come true. Yeah. What, I, I what, didn't, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> see like, that one
2: Yeah. I, just, I didn't see that one on camera, but I think we should hold off on that bit because I think we need to devote a significant section, like discussing the climax to that aspect, because that is a whopper.
1: What I think one thing that they, uh, is worth mentioning and we'll kind of like get into it when the scenes that directly relate to it uh, pop up later on in the film. But it's interesting. This film is made two years after Exit Wounds. And Exit Wounds is a Polish director, right? I think so. I'm not sure. Anyway, they're pretty. Polish director. A Polish director doing like wire stunt Hong Kong action style movies. And then we see this film and it is by... The guy who did stunts in John Woo's The Killer. Yeah, he was a Hong Kong guy, director. Yeah. Yeah. And he did stunts. In, I think he, no, he he directed all three Chinese ghost story movies. He directed the Swordsman films. He did stunts in Hero. So, I mean, it's like this guy is Mr. Hong Kong action movie. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think there's a number of scenes in this film that I don't think they even hold a candle to a lot of stuff in Exit Wounds, which is strange because it's a guy who is seems very authentic based on his...
2: Filmography. So I did a bit of research because this movie captivated
0: me on many levels. First of all, Dan, thank you for being the first guest on this show who has done the heavy lifting and is just willing to buoy this podcast along because normally it falls to Michael or I. You go for it.
2: So I'm going to paraphrase in this bit of IMDb trivia I found. The director, uh, Su Tung Ching, supposedly filmed a lot of the action scenes without Steven Seagal being there.
1: Incredibly evident.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> opting to film his shots last. But then Seagull insisted on filming his shots in a way that wouldn't accommodate the existing footage. Uh-huh. Yeah. So st- still continuing to paraphrase. Ching is said to have left the set, taking a stunt crew with him and welcoming Seagull to finish the scene by himself.
1: Huh. Yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm really not surprised by
2: that. There are scenes... Throughout this movie in which you can kind of notice that gap there, like a moment about half an hour into the movie where he goes back to his hotel and he like puts his key in the door and he looks down and he sees like shadows moving behind his door, which lets him know, Oh, someone's there. Someone's already waiting for him. But the way the bottom of the door is shot. It's from
1: like a 45 degree angle. Like he's standing directly. Yes. Next I to the made door. a note of this. Yeah, like totally.
2: he, he should have been visible <laughs> yeah. in that shot. Yeah. And like it's impossible, th- yeah that that is very evident that like either they didn't have a lot of continuity photography at the time, or yeah, this is one of the ones that Papa Seagal came back for,
0: one of my favorite uh sort of things that you can tell Stephen Seagal was not on set for a lot of the main shots for are his stunt double is has, like eighty pounds less <laughs> is eighty pounds less, and two has living hair on his head that like moves and flows with his yeah. body. So anytime he's being thrown, like his hair all of a sudden moves, and like is silky smooth and looks like it can be shampooed and conditioned, is not just sort of like a blown out rat's nest of horse hair. Yeah, like a like a
1: uh, a a a bunch of steel wool spray painted black. Oh my god! Crudely, crudely formed into kind of a ponytail, but more of like a, a brush you'd use. To, like, clean the ashes from your fireplace or something?
2: Yeah. The Steel Wool comparison is really apt. It oh, like does you. look like it was spray-painted black. Mm. Uh, just, like, so we can kind of go with this flow here. So, yeah, uh, Jake Hopper and Cindy, they're sitting in on this, not sitting in, they're participating in this deal with shady characters. an event, evidently, one of the shady characters does not trust them, so he pulls a gun, resulting in a massive shootout that breaks out into the streets. And I will say, I will give this movie its dues, a lot of good squibs. (laughs) So yeah, squibs, if you aren't like aware of the terminology, is basically small little explosives placed underneath clothing and costumes right adjacent to fake blood packets. So when a character is supposed to be shot in the movie, the squib explosive goes off, blows a hole in the costume and blows fake blood everywhere to simulate being shot. And that's something that doesn't appear too much in action movies nowadays because it's a lot cheaper to do like, CG blood. Like, even the John Wick movies, which I love, there's a lot of CG blood shots because those movies are so rigorously choreographed that, like, they can't really afford, like, oh, we need to get another costume shirt, or oh, we need to scrub the set for fake blood again. Mm
0: -hmm. So one of my least favorite things about watching The Walking Dead the few times that I do is anytime a knife goes in, like, digital (laughs) blood, like, from mist, (laughs) CD-ROM comes out on the side and then, like, splashes, and it's just it looks like little animated gifs. The
2: also problem with that is that Frank Darabont didn't put in the blood code, so it comes out green due to censorship.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, anyways, but God, uh, you know our audience. Yeah, and like, but unfortunately, the, all this squib work goes the south when a poor bystander woman is unfortunately caught in the crossfire and killed by Sunti, orphaning her daughter and leaving Sunti a broken, remorseful man. And then we cut forward some years later to the present. Well,
0: wait a second. This woman is the only person in this movie who isn't initially electrified by the bullets and has to go back and forth oh. every time they are shot. Yeah, that, that <laughs> was bad. There was a lot of scenes where... Uh,
1: yeah, like, they, it's they, a very they, Their body just turned into a bunch of snakes, and they're just going... Like, <laughs> and you're like, come on. Uh, unless you're getting hit by, like, 1,100 bullets at once... I'm sure you'll just get hit with the bullet and then fall down. You're not going to be like,
0: oh, 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 oh. and sometimes these people like the bullets they were using were so powerful, the air pressure preceding the bullet would hit them and they would start going backwards, and then the squib yeah, would yeah, go yeah. off. It's
2: crazy. Well, it's like uh, it's kind of like the opposite of one of those faster. And, well, it's like kind of like a faster than light bullet, where like, or is it the opposite of that? Where basically like time is out of sync. <laughs> it's just it's just it's <laughs> the power of those bullets,
0: man. Ten years later in Hawaii, though Steven Seagal, my God, the sneakiest man in the. Well, first let's let's talk about how this scene is set up because there's so much going on. There's a there's a man who's implied to be rich. There's two men implied to be security guards. There's one talking? woman who's very strongly to be implied to be naked.
2: Oh, no, yeah. It's like we, I hope we were going to talk about the pool girl because the title shot of this movie where we see the words belly of the beast is over this lady swimming naked in a pool and like we never see this woman again. She yeah. is, so it basically involves Hopper, this now ex-CIA character, breaking into this rich, kind of ambiguous gangster character's guy's home.
1: It, it almost makes me think of like how every single drug dealer's house in the 90s they all look like that. Like they're all that sort yes. of like dead tech, ultra modern r- r- rectilinear kind of blocks and
2: stuff. It, and it's funny that Mike is wearing a t-shirt of the 1995 film Heat here because he just <laughs> uh, he just kind of paraphrased the, a quote by Al Pacino's character in that movie. This dead tech, postmodernistic bullshit <laughs> house. Uh, but no, it is exactly that kind of thing. And the the mobster rich dude character, we never... I don't think he ever utters a single line of dialogue. Yeah. But this impression I get from him is of the Mendoza character in the McBain <laughs> clips you see throughout uh The Simpsons. Uh like is like a hundred times more powerful than Marijuana. Like that kind of dude, that generic
0: drug dealer kind of dude. Anyways. But this is the first time that we see the like 90s-esqueness of the like the, the first scene of this film is shot really competently and looks like a lot like Asian cinema. This second scene. Looks like it was like an episode of Friends where everything goes dark. <laughs> it's like,
2: you know, like you say 90s, like even though this movie came out in 2003, this un- introductory scene feels like it's from 96, 97. Yeah, yeah. it definitely uh, does. And not movies like TV. <laughs> yes, like it feels like an episode, like an intro to an episode of Nash Bridges. <laughs> I, well, one thing I will say, the, 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 the mention before about how they were kind of
1: juxtaposing the, the t- Belly of the Beast title with the woman swimming in the pool. I honestly thought, uh, I had to check Urban Dictionary to make sure that that wasn't just like a slang, slang for like <laughs> a vagine or something. It's a, it's an interesting scene because like I would say in comparison to some of the later uh, Segal films that we've seen, they do a poor job of sort of cutting around his uh, less than ideal of physical prowess at this point in his career. I
0: mean, no, they do an amazing <laughs> yeah. way, job of this. Yeah. So, with the first wire work we've seen yeah. in this film.
2: <laughs> so I will just say to give this man his dues, at least as how he's portrayed in the movie, Steve Seagal, a paradoxically stealthy man. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he, like, this bulkhead of a man, he stealthily cuts the glass, he breaks into the house, he does this amazing slide
0: across the floor where he's like the first amount of wire work in this film describe it Dan
2: yeah so the way he's posed with like one arm pointed out (laughs) as he slides perfectly like in a straight line across the floor with momentum that he could not have gotten from a running start it's like it looks like he was synchronized swimming but on
0: tile he's increasing in velocity as he goes across this floor in a way that we like would not be out of place in a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Yeah, the the
1: thing that I found so peculiar about it was that it was the most like virtuosic physical feat for a situation that demanded the least amount of virtuosity. Like he could he could have just crawled underneath the window, but instead they're just like he's going to use the superpower of gliding 35 feet By just a a little hop. And he's going to do like a Superman pose, but he looks like every employee at a New Jersey pizzeria. And it it was just like, it was insane. It just like, it seemed like such a misuse of something so hyper
0: stylized. So in the second establishing shot of him in Hawaii, he goes across probably 75 feet of clear glass pane, pane windows running across. And you can see him against a lit up background And he makes no effort to conceal himself. There is a gap of four feet for a window that he slides accelerating across the floor. And like he picked up a power up in Mario Kart. We
2: keep talking about this slide, but I so badly want an animated GIF of this slide. Just like drop in on Facebook chats like whenever I need it. Because it's just... It's artificiality just spoke to me. Also, one, uh, this guy went to the Tom Jane in Deep Blue Sea School for unnecessary rolling. (laughs) There's a few in there, Buddy, you didn't need to roll there. Also, like he like jumps when he's being sneaky. He jumps down to a lower level. The sound made when he lands on the floor is one, much quieter than it should be given his mass, And two, still loud enough that I'm really shocked that the guards in that building did not hear it.
0: But the thing is, the score at this time in this movie really reflects Steven Seagal as a whole because as he's running up to jump over a second story railing to land down on the first floor, there's like big beat, breakbeat music playing. And then yeah. when he lands on the ground, it goes absolutely silent. Like there's almost a reverse suction out of noise. Okay.
2: Yeah. There was like vaguely drum and bass stuff in there. Yeah. Scene.
0: Yeah, the, the, yeah. The music was, it was, it was like, it was, was also very 90s. There was
1: the, yeah. the corny, like drum bass breaks but then there was also that
0: seven samurai that <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah and it's just like this is a bizarre
0: juxtaposition of styles so in researching this film today I discovered that on the unofficial Steven Seagal message boards the uh, score to this film is one of the most requested scores of all the films of Steven Seagal because so many people I believe they, and it was in and around the time that it was released we're disappointed with having to buy the score to Exit Wounds, which is just basically a DMX album. Yeah. <laughs> I'll
2: say our friend Hopper, he does retrieve whatever it was he was stealing from that
0: vague mobster fellow's house. Which again is never defined, but he opens up a safe and only pulls out a mini disc. Yes, it was a mini disc. Thank you. Are they covered in like lights
2: and stuff? And like, I guess that is kind of straddling the border between 1999 and 2000. Like that technology was still kind of going, so I can I can give it that for the time period.
0: I would have appreciated like a Zip Disk. Oh, that was a beautiful flash
2: in the plan. Like to the point that Zip Disk is verbally immortalized in Zoolander. Like it is a key plot point near the end of the movie, where like we think Owen Wilson has accidentally destroyed the computer containing all the important secrets about Magatu, but then Jerry Stiller is like, "I got backups on Zip
0: Disk." <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> like another. Great place in time. Really. <laughs> you know, he retrieves the disc for I think he was getting it on behalf of the CIA. The plot in this movie is very vaguely defined. If you want to understand why we're trying struggling to describe it. Yeah. So I, I think that when the guy comes to pick
1: it up from him, Seagal says, does the CIA still know you're using me? Which is, of course, a recurring theme in mm. his film, even as latest Contract to Kill, where it's just like, I'm not a company man but I have s- such mad skills that I'm still going to be employed by the CIA, which, of course, is something that
0: he's maintained in his personal life. The guy who's he's giving it to, I'm pretty sure, later is in a scene at the CIA, and he yes. said that he trained under him yeah. for yes, two years. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, Hopper's a good man. Yeah. yeah.
2: We see that CIA office twice, and I like to think those scenes were shot on the same day. But we understand that since the rough and tumble years back in 1994 with that shootout, Hopper settled down. He had a wife at some point, but we understand she's no longer with us because he has mor- memorialized her in a shrine in his house. But thankfully, he also has like a daughter who is going on a fun trip with her three pals like in a lake in the middle of Thailand. No, is it Hawaii or is it Thailand where this stuff goes down, like the kidnapping? Nice Thailand. Thailand, yeah. yeah. He,
0: has to, he has to go from Hawaii to And I think it's just her other friend and their two boyfriends.
2: Yes. Anyway, yeah, so she... Tags along for the ride. So we mentioned the whole thing with like bodies not reacting realistically to bullets. These four lovable teens they're partying in this lake in the middle of the Thai jungle when suddenly they're surrounded by several armed men. One of whom uh, kills the very preppy white boyfriend with a machete. Another one, who, a man
0: so absorbed with the music that they asked him to put on that he doesn't not uh, he doesn't notice a military yunta coming upon him.
2: That he completely ignored, like, he puts on the music
0: from the, like, after changing
2: from the news station, which was talking about the very plot relevant bombing at a downtown bank earlier (laughs) that day. Uh, Yeah, so poor fellow gets a machete, presumably to the throat, and the daughter, her name is Jessica, her poor boyfriend gets a bullet right to the face in the water, like, the, the poor man does a perfect backflip as he's shot in the forehead <laughs> like something worthy of an olympic swimmer the hell of a bullet final those jfk bullets i like a- uh, guess <laughs> also sorry i forgot to mention this earlier she calls uh seems to go on the phone like like talking about like how
0: she's you're the on. one who
2: brought us to this point i know i i should yeah i'm just a drunken man guiding this train it just stuck with me when she calls him on the phone and says like very excitedly hey daddy I just don't ever want to hear the words, hey daddy, said to Steven Seagal anytime in my life. If there's anything that Steven Seagal's filmography has taught us up to
1: this point, that if there's any role that he legitimately excels at, it's as a father. Because in The Patriot, it's the one time that he's actually likable and actually believable. Like yes. the, the, the chemistry that he has with his daughter in The Patriot is pretty impressive. He doesn't really get the chance to, to showcase it this much in the, because the, they're separated
2: for pretty much the entire film.
0: But it's also the only time in this film where he seems like an actual human being who exists on planet Earth. That's true. Right.
2: Also, I just noticed that the tagline on the official DVD color cover for Belly of the Beast is, a father's rage knows no limit. God
0: damn! True. So He was doing Taken so many years before Taken, and then he started copying Taken. That's crazy. And so I guess it's when the uh, guy comes to pick up
1: the magic zip drive from him, uh, and he begrudgingly informs him that
2: his daughter has been taken. Yeah, that information is delivered kind of weirdly. I wasn't expected to be delivered yeah. in that way. Yeah. And so uh, one hilarious detail, which
1: like it, it is perfectly Segal, but... I guess it's so perfectly just makes it that much funnier that the going from Hawaii to Thailand, it signifies a costume change into like a Kung Fu pajamas outfit. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hey, Asian people. I am down and I just want to let you know I might be 605, might be Caucasian,
2: but I'm ready to participate in your culture. Yeah. And participate. He does like every person he encounters in Thailand. uh, He does this little this does this little bow to them. And I read up on this. So this is part of a uh, usual greeting in Thailand. This little bow called the Y. Now, it's if you're a foreigner, you do not need to do this bow when you're introducing yourself to a, a Thai person. Like, though it is common courtesy that if they give you this little bow, you're supposed to return it. Like, the way he does it and, like, the inflection he puts in his voice is just really condescending. And I couldn't get over that through the entire
0: time watching not only condescending but the way he does it his hands are always like really really cupped as if he's trying to catch a sneeze he's about to give
2: (laughs) his hands are cupped in the way that i would put over my mouth if i was doing a darth vader impression
0: (laughs) but and then he jerks his head forward as if he's like yeah like i'm about to sneeze and then like a little side
2: cock of his head (laughs) when he does it and yeah it's like there's something vaguely patronizing about how he does it throughout the entire movie.
1: That's the perfect segue into his like opening like 90 seconds into the country. This idea of patronizing that he's uh, respectful enough or uh, enamored of enough uh, Thai culture to, you know, wear. I don't even know if that would be considered a Thai garment, uh, but like to wear that and just, you know, his whole shtick is, you know, like I'm I'm very Eastern motivated, blah, 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 but that he's in Thailand for just a handful of minutes, and he basically uses the country's like uh, street-level ruffians as a foil to show how much of a badass he is. And it's like, that's a pretty big coincidence that the cab that he chose to take was going to be involved in like the biggest stick-up in history. Like It's not just the cab driver has a gun, which, of course, is taken away in, in the blink of an eye, but that there's this massive crew... That uh, spills into this huge fight in a market. Yeah,
2: fish market.
1: And it's just like, of course, it's completely insane. But we, we kind of talked about this earlier, uh, potentially off the air. But there's some kind of, there's some virtuosic jumping spin kicks. And it, it's very obvious that the uh, stuntman doing these is not, you know, six foot five, 280 pounds. <laughs> it's, it's very clearly... Uh, a young Chinese gentleman, maybe, maybe a buck 60 max. Another bizarre part about this uh, fight scene that is pretty much ignored for the entire film up to the, until the very climax is right when the last bad guy seems like he's going to get away, this mysterious evil shaman does some magic stuff and the guy kills himself.
0: Okay, so, and this is, is actually set up in a very, very nice way, which I love which is Steven Seagal's fight with the cab driver. He flips the gun, spills out into this fish market where he kills a whole bunch of guys, and then he tries to get information from one of these thugs about sort of like, uh, where's my daughter at? Things like that. Things that every person in Thailand knows when a white person is captured. And then this guy, as he's being sort of, his arm is being held backwards, he sees the shaman just walking down the street in full sort of Shamaic clothing, and he just gives him an evil glance which you makes you think okay this guy's maybe like a a don or something like uh, that around here. The thing that this glance makes this man do. You mean the best death in the movie? Is <laughs> is amazing Dan you on
2: take it. Yeah, so he like kind of flees in a panic or like he ends up
0: belly flopping onto this icy this table full of ice and fish prepared to sell which Steven Seagal doesn't find surprising because Every man who could run from him before they die would, and he accepts that. But this man... Flails, falls onto this table, and screaming, like, slides across this icy
2: fish table, face-first into the edge of a meat cleaver that just happens to be embedded in the table <laughs> at the perfect angle.
0: And he slides into it perfectly, slicing his head in two is the sort of implication. Yes. and But then his body, like every body in here that is... Dead upon impact is electrified for a second and then dies, but like, and it's not like a small fishmonger's table either. It's easily twenty feet long that this guy's sliding before his head hits the splitting. Yeah, it
2: seems like a little bit longer than one of the community tables you'll find at a Starbucks. Uh, I
1: feel like it's what Thai children probably use in place of uh, what us Westerners call a
2: slip and slide. So this is one of the next point is something. This is why I first noticed like in this first fight scene. You know how you say, you know, words are ultimately symbols that we use to convey ideas. But like the word itself, like the actual construction of phonemes in of themselves are kind of like arbitrary and meaningless. If you say a word enough times, it just kind of sounds meaningless, like milk or take. You say those things over and over again, like it just sounds ridiculous. I say all that to lead into me saying that I looked at Steve Sackall enough times, and he just became like indistinguishable from Jim Belushi to me. Huh. <laughs> like Jim Belushi with a mix of Danny R. McBride as Kenny Powers. Mm.
1: I thought I thought that was going in a different direction. I thought that this was the segue into how brutal the dubbing was in this movie. Oh, yeah. It was insane. Like we've talked about ADR stuff in the past, oh. but I mean, this was nuts. There were so many. There were scenes. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, but if obviously you guys seem to say, I feel like there's scenes where it's not his voice. Huh? Like I feel like there's scenes like there's a few scenes where he starts speaking Thai and then it goes into him as Seagal. And it's clearly dubbed. I know for a fact it's dubbed, but like it doesn't really sound like Steven Seagal. It sounds like someone with a lower, like sorry, a higher register doing a Seagal impression. Maybe they just use some crazy compression and it sounds off, but like I would put, I'd put a hundred bucks on it that there's, Several scenes where like the, the scene in the, the Buddhist monastery, he starts off speaking to this kind of like elderly monk who occurs mm-hmm. later in the film. This- and he's, he's like, <laughs> bai bai. he says something in Thai and then he continues speaking to him. I'm sure it's not his voice. You
2: know, I'm actually I like to think it is his voice, but he kind of messed it up on the actual live day <laughs> and like the actual shooting day. And so, like, eventually he's like, can you, can you fix this in post? <laughs> and, like, he reads it off over his telephone, and it's not the same pitch. He's not in the mood of the scene, so he's not saying it the same tone. Like, I, I can totally imagine it like that.
0: But it also brings up another fact that happens a lot in this film, which is a lot of people who are government officials in Thailand choose their very broken English to communicate with each other Yes, in, And it's just... It's such a product of a movie that we want to be available throughout the world in 2003. That is not something that is done anymore. Where, like, you know, you'll you'll see movies where they won't even give the subtitles for what two sort of superpowers are talking about. But if you know that language, you sort of know how the film's going to sort of uh, play out later. Whereas this one is just sort of oh, my men are being very bad and are being dead. And it, it, it's just, it's so painful to see and listen to. Yeah, they, the 20, the,
1: the way that language is handled, it's uh completely evident that this is a film for English-speaking Westerners mm-hmm. created by and, for the most part, starring non-English-speaking Easterners.
2: There's like, at max, like a handful of American characters and like actors in this movie and most of them are like completely not part of the action. They're sitting around a CIA office.
0: And the problem with a lot of this is that if you were to take all those scenes where non-Western actors are speaking lines that could be communicated to each other not using English, it would contribute a whole bunch more, especially to those scenes where James Gall's daughter is captured and put away. It, it would contribute to your feelings of isolations for her. Like, you, you would feel a lot more for her. Whereas yeah. in this one, they communicate everything directly to her in the language that she understands. Also,
2: I'm like pretty sure all the scenes of her and her friend in that prison cell, those also give off the vibe. Of, we filmed all these in the same day. Because the lighting seems the same for most of those scenes, like same time of day. So I get that impression like, okay, we're just trying to be efficient here. We know we can't get Segal for this scene like today because he's doing we're basically doing all of his stuff in post. So we're just (laughs) going to make the most of our time. We're going to film all these jail cell scenes right
0: now. All right. So after the fishmongers, where are we going? Is it the
2: uh, club? Yes, he goes to the club and the club isn't the first place to use slow motion. This movie far from the first scene. But it was the first thing I noticed about how conspicuous the slow-mo is. One, it's not high-speed slow-mo. When I say high-speed slow-mo, I mean like when we think of a lot of smooth slow-motion photography in movies, it's because it, when it's filmed at a regular pace, it's actually shot in a higher frame rate. Mm-hmm. So that when you do slow it down, it is very smooth. This is very obviously, we filmed this in regular scene, uh, regular frame rate at the time of filming. And we slowed it down in post, and it looks very choppy as a result because it's not running at the intended frame rate. And there was a lot of that, so much of it that at certain points in this movie, I'm like wondering how much shorter would this movie be in terms of minutes if all of the slow mo stuff was shot, was like played at regular speed? Because mm-hmm. like, I think you would probably like lose five minutes of this movie by speeding it up.
0: I think that's what uh, Godard did for Breathless, right? <laughs> One of the things, the only thing I really appreciate in terms of the editing of this film, in terms of slow mo, was they did there was an effect that I thought was something that you don't see in a lot of Western action films, where it'd be a moment of slow-mo followed with a moment of uh like speed up. Regular mo. Not even regular, like uh, almost Faster like uh like Zack Snyder, but like in in sort of like the space of two seconds as opposed to yeah. sort of like it would be like in two seconds like a lot of the gun flips were done like that yeah, yeah, where yeah. it would be like a really quick gun flip but then like a little yeah. bit of a longer pull of the mm-hmm. trigger or something like that. It, 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 it was an interesting stylistic trick. Obviously not the best because they didn't have you know 48 frames or whatever they would have needed to well, do effective. The, the, see promo. this is
1: a turning point because like, like there's a weird mix of really good filmmaking uh, and good like action stuff Mm -hmm. and then just like absolutely terrible stuff and it's very very strange like you know we talked about this seagal sliding on the floor thing but like there's like a lot of interesting camera work and some stuff does work but then some stuff just doesn't work at all and like
2: i think this ties into that bit of like imdb trivia i found in which like they did not have seagal there for a lot of scenes (laughs) (laughs) but he single-handedly ruined the movie like not (laughs) single-handedly like this isn't a script to write home about in the first place, but like, there's a lot of stuff there that is competently shot. And I think a lot of the lesser stuff, the lesser stuff in this okay movie, like the okay rest of the movie, that is to say is like, Oh, we had to compensate for the fact that our lead actor was not on set for most of these days. And we are basically shooting his scenes on reshoots.
1: I mean, you know, like it, it's, it sounds like a funny thing to say, but like, again, again, if you look, at the rest of this guy's filmography. Like, I mean, if you talk to, like, Hong Kong action nerds, they're always like, Chinese ghost star, you need to see that. Like, it's like a classic. Like, it's like, it's like, like in the same way that someone's going to you have to see The Killer. You have to see Hard Boiled. They're going to say you have to see Chinese ghost star. You have to see Swordsman. And, like, yeah, like, I don't think it's crazy to think that if this guy has a certain formula that seems to work pretty well and he's really knocked it out of the park a bunch of times, when you... Introduce the X factor of Seagal into it.
2: He's an X factor. That,
1: yeah. Like that, it, the, I don't think it's unfair to say that, like it,
0: that, it had a detrimental effect on. Um... Well, in the IMDb trivia page, it does say that the director said he would threaten to take him and his stunt team off yeah. the film. And when wow. you think about it, like, uh, look at all of Jackie Chan's uh, movies it's all with the stunt team that he came up with and that he trained and that he sort of like all those stunts are done because he has that trust with that team. Yeah. Whereas in this one, I don't want to, we do have to get motoring on this thing, but like, uh, uh, there's a reason, like the budget was $14 million and up until the very end of the movie, you only see about $10 million on screen. And then you see about $4 million worth of CGI.
1: So, sure, let, we'll, we'll fast forward a, a bit ahead. So, basically, the the the, the action kind of uh, takes a bit of a dip after the...
0: It's a uh, lot of establishing of Seagal as his standard sort of good guy. Yeah, so
2: he heads to this club, which is run by his old buddy, Fitch McQuaid, like a fellow
0: American uh, who just does not treat the ladies at his own club. <laughs> like Which... In another world, this guy would be played by a down on his luck Stephen Carell. Wait, Steve Carell of like of The o- Office, yeah. Really? That is exactly that is the immediately when I saw this guy's face and physical build, I build I was just like, that's Steve Carell. Why I was thinking like the the budget version of him. Steve Carell's a bit too likable. If you guys will disagree with me, this podcast will be cut. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair.
2: But like, it is during this scene where like the two old buddies catch up, and we learn that you know Segal states, even though it isn't already obvious, that he's been out of the game for ten years, and he makes it sound like he's very reluctant, very hesitant about mm. this because he might be rusty. But what we've immediately seen in the preceding action sequence is like, no, he's not rusty. No, nope. he's not apprehensive about this at all. He's this unstoppable golem, like. Yeah trudging through Thailand, like beating down everyone in his path.
1: Establishing his relationship with the club owner. It kind of comes back a little later on in the film, but in sort of like a, a corny way. But perhaps the, the biggest takeaway from the club scene is, I, th- I think the, the thing is going to be the first Seagal film where we uh, have a love interest that uh, blossoms into a sex scene. Ooh. And so there's there's this uh, Thai girl who's being harassed by this dude with really bad teeth. Yes. I'm not sure what they were trying to yeah, imply I, with I that.
2: Was, I thought it was braces at first, but looks more like tooth decay. Yeah.
1: Really so he kind of saves her. He does this sort of thing that is at the same time so not Segal, but so Segal, where he does his who's the dude in Maltese Falcon,
2: uh, Bogart. Yeah,
1: he does his Bogart thing where he is just completely indifferent towards the lustful female's advances. Oh, let me bring you food. Let me do this. Let me that. And he's like, I'm not hungry. He's (laughs) he's just, like, so cool. But he's not even trying to be, like, a cool, like, pickup guy. He's
2: committing to that 50-cent no-fap. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's just, like, not interested at all. So, um, yeah. So that comes back later on where uh, we see a Seagal
2: sex scene for the first Mm. time ever. Where... Uh, oh, really? Like, I, I confess, mm. I haven't seen a ton of Seagal movies. I didn't know sex scenes weren't a thing this stuff. Contracted kill. There's a sex scene?
0: Yeah. It's one of the most uncomfortable ones that... That's Because sexy. it features real nudity, and uh, Steven Seagal as a six-foot-five man with massive hands cups this woman's breast as it closes to black. It's like watching a spoiled child with a toy.
1: <gasps> I <know. laughs>
0: So in this sex scene, one thing that's funny, of course, is he's...
2: Completely closed. Through. And on the bottom. Yes. Um, oh, so Kevin Smith style. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: did there's a lot of sort of like a... Uh, 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 it was tough for him to get a hockey jersey down in Thailand, <laughs> but it was well worth it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so um I guess after that, he goes to a Buddhist temple and <laughs> he finds his old buddy. Sunti, from back who, in the day. I guess, okay, Just just to make sure I'm remembering it properly, in the opening, when he gets shot, it's it's almost kind of implied that he might be dead, right? And so it's kind of surprising when he's yeah, alive, it's, right? It's not
2: clear. Like, yeah, I, I was actually briefly concerned at the beginning. It Was like, yeah. no, you're not going to take Byron Man away from me this quickly. <laughs> yeah, me like world's number one Byron Man stand.
1: Yeah, and so I like I, I assume because the the ending and in this kind of like like super tragic like uh, shit went bad sort of way, I was surprised to see that he survived. But
2: in the same sense, it. It, it kind of sets things up for later in the film. Yeah. He's like, we see Sunti again. And he's just very quiet, like silently remorseful man. And there's actually like kind of cheesy exchange between the two guys, but I kind of like the phrasing of it where he's like, he's like, like, how's your, how's your stomach? Like, I think the, the part where the body where he was shot, he's like, oh, the scar's healing up fine. And Seagal's like, and how's your heart? <laughs> <laughs> because obviously this, man, this man's actions, however unintentional, have weighed on him throughout the years, which is why he's living this ascetic lifestyle in a Buddhist temple.
0: Because he shot a woman to death. Yes. And uh, then Steven Seagal goes and visits his... Mass, uh, his the, the, head, the head of the...
2: Hans Moleman?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And a football comes from Ooh, nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <Doing>. <laughs> So uh, his former partner
1: uh, decides to leave the temple and uh, yeah. join up with him again. Let's get to back go, in the shit. <laughs> To go
0: fuck up some dudes. I've <laughs> spent 10 years as a Buddhist monk. 10 seconds with Seagal. I mean, no wonder the ladies are lost. He's a toxic him. influence. He can turn you in a second. He's a violence enabler. No wonder his show had to be shut down for uh, sexual trafficking. No criminal
1: charges ever filed.
0: (laughs) So, like, just for the sake of people
2: trying to follow along with this vaguely plotted movie, the whole kidnapping situation is being framed. Is that, like, a band of Islamic terrorists in Thailand have kidnapped these girls? That's how it's being framed, like, by the government officials. Though, uh, Hopper, he has his doubts. And so Hopper and Sinti go to this remote train yard to observe, like a deal, like an arms deal between uh, this terrorist leader and like these vague kind of gangster characters. Like they're concerned that, like, like they can see that a sniper is waiting up in like the control tower, like with his sights on the terrorist leader. And Hopper's like, uh, like if if he dies. We're going to lose out on in the information that will lead to my daughter. Hopper is Seagal
0: in this film. Uh, yeah. it, it, <laughs> He's always got the worst names. Like
1: Jake Hopper? That's the guy who uh, unplugs your toilet.
2: I, I almost, in the beginning, I had to pull up a, a Wikipedia to figure out his name because I was about to say Jim Hopper. No, that's the sheriff character from Stranger Things. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, no. he
1: always has the dumbest
2: names. Like also, Thorin
1: the, something like that?
2: The way he realizes that the terrorist leader is about to be shot is that he peeks his head around the train and like he sees the guy up in the tower. But again, just to reiterate, Seagal is like, it's impossible for this man to be stealthy because even if like, he's like a lumbering Sasquatch of a man, if even half of his face is poking around the side of a train car, that half of his face is about the size of a football.
0: Not only that, but like half of his body. Also, in terms of bad names, uh, at one point in the film, When Seagal's about to head into the climax, he tells his lover, "Uh, if anything happens to me, find my friend Tom Collins. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, Tom Collins, yeah. Yeah, I was like, that's a
0: drink. Which would be amazing if he's trying to tell her just drown your Citaros. Yeah. I would love that if that was like a like a, sort of like or, a, a Neo Noir sort of ah oh, find my friend Tom Collins. But no, like <laughs> it'd be a great Stephen Seagal is too enlightened. That would be
1: a I great think. male
0: stripper name, also.
1: <laughs> All right, ladies, who's thirsty for a Tom Collins? It's raining and Man.
0: This scene is amazing. Yeah, one of the most ill conceived shootouts in, oh, in in film history. It also has one of the greatest scenes in film history. Yes, which is Steven Seagal at one point. Uh, Okay, so in this film, in this shootout, the uh, the 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 woman, yeah, the the woman woman has brought along all the people who were on break from their job at Sears, and the gorilla person has brought along everybody who knew to bring sort of. uh, generic kind of rebel gear yeah yeah and so they start fighting and uh like just shooting each other like everybody has unlimited ammo cheat code on in the second and then steven seagal gets into the center of it and finds like a laid down train cart on a pair of tracks and jumps onto it and then kicks off from the, whatever it was seated he, upon he,
1: he kicks off with one foot
0: yes i remember this and yeah. this is amazing because it's the best use of slow motion in this film where it you almost don't think it's slow motion because he's going yeah. so slowly to yeah. begin with because all he's done is sort of kicked his leg out yeah to push off like probably a 300 pound plus 250 pound train cart into motion yeah and so they slow it down and so it doesn't nothing looks like it's actually happening but he's killing people left and right like he's filling men with lead yeah
1: he, when he's on the the train cart moving like not only do we just know based on a, a rudimentary understanding of, of uh physics that he's not going to be moving that so uh, that quickly but also like you can see in the scene that there's crowds of people who are clearly running much faster than he is moving on the train cart but the idea is supposed to be that he is moving at such a high rate of speed that they're incapable of shooting him even though there's crowds of people and him with a, a single handgun is able to shoot all these guys who are running around there's like 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 mobs running at him and he's just bam 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 hey, guys like to
2: thank you for bringing up the handgun because even though, like, most of the enemies in this movie are armed with, like, knockoff M16s or AK-47s and like that, he's like, you know how Hopper's such a badass? He's taking them all down with his Colt M1911.
0: And everybody gets, like, at least six shots into them. And- but the thing is, Steven Seagal in this scene looks like the best gift you've ever seen of an overfed f- seal at a zoo, Like he just, he looks so happy and he's pew, pew, pew with his little fins that should not be able to operate the gun, but they do. And then at one point he flops over on his side to face the other way. And that blows my mind. Like he was just going straight down the middle of a firefight and there was just like a fat man It was like something out of Family Guy, but Family Guy would have scrapped it because it was too dumb. Just like Peter Griffin going so slowly down a train yard in between two warring factions. I
1: I feel like this must be the first film in the history of movie making where an actor's first two wire stunts in the film were him lying on his side. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like... (laughs) <laughs> I I don't ever the I, I I've seen *Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon* at least two or three times, and I'm pretty sure Chai and Fat was on at least one foot.
2: So yeah, the uh, stickall is if we're just continuing along the seal note. He's a truly enlightened pinniped who's like realized like the value of conservation of motion.
1: <laughs> yeah. So at the end of that scene, I uh, pushed a lever, even though it's the most uh, intense firefight ever. Segal's arrested by the police, and uh, the, the the in in the most beautiful uh, tactical display ever of them running in a group and surrounding him like uh, a bunch of ch- children playing Ghost in the Graveyard, like they're gonna tag him or something.
2: It
0: can't kill us all at once. Yeah, it, it, it's, <laughs> it like looked crazy. like the final scene of like something from Benny Hill because. <laughs> Those were all obviously unpaid extras yeah. no, and all of them were so excited to have a gun. Like there's one guy who comes yeah. up to him and as he's pointing his gun at Seagal, it buckles <laughs> and it sort of spins in his hand for a second. And then he sort of shakes and gets it back up. It's beautiful. And then the,
1: the, the thing that's even funnier in, in terms of just like uh, this sort of, I guess scene uh, blocking is that scene kind of sets us up for the almost like I, I, I think Danny mentioned that a Buster Keaton before Uh Seagal is arrested and the police, the tight police chief is kind of giving him shit and eventually things escalate into violence and Seagal is, you know, knocking guns out of people's hands, blah, blah, blah. And eventually the gun kind of gets popped up in the air and the second he grabs it and points it at the chief, every, uh, officer, in the office that we haven't really seen or hasn't been beat up or whatever, the exact second that he points the gun at him, eight people point their gun right at him, and it just like mm-hmm. like 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 it's comedic, like to say the very least. Like it doesn't come across as intense fight choreography. Like this is not uh uh you know Chow Yun Fat doing some crazy shit in the killer. Like this is like. It seems silly. Like it, it, it seems it's like naked gun part duh or something. Oh wait, hot, hot shots part duh. <laughs> it, it was naked gun 33 and a third, sorry. Uh, but I mean it's it's silly to say the very least. But anyway, Seagal gets
0: put he, he he's cleared De- he's of momentarily charges. detained. Yeah, he's cleared of all charges because of his CIA sitter, who may also be colluding with the government. Like which he- is a confusing scene. It's basically like straight up said out loud that
2: yes, he is colluding. But, like, this never comes back around on the guy.
1: Yeah, like, is, 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 the, is the black guy, like, does he know that Segal is in the right and so he's kind of giving him a bit of a pass? No, or like, is he just, like, a fuck-up?
2: You no, know, he's, like, neither of that. Like, like, Interesting. Like, he's not, like, his other CIA buddy who's just, like, you you got to do this. I'm going to let you do this off the books because it's, it's not right. his brother from another mother. Yeah, this guy is like straight up like working against Segal, but like even though like he's straight up on the side of the villain in this movie, it's implied like he's kind of escapes any sort of punishment. Same yeah. with the corrupt police chief. It's, mm, yeah, yeah, like they both kind of show up at the end, like after the climax is just finished, but like they both kind of escape any sort of retribution or punishment for their actions. But ain't that just how life is? Yeah.
1: And then I guess when he leaves the police station, we have the sex scene
2: mm-hmm. where... Uh, Is this after uh, the, the club worker finds out that her roommate has been brutally murdered? I mean, there's a lot I going think, on.
1: I think so, because I think that might be like the the emotional uh, b- breaking point because uh, her bringing him all those nummy goodies oh, was, was not
2: enough. So uh, that's a- literally food, not. That's a good follow up on that, because near the beginning of the movie, when Hopper's Seagal is talking to his daughter over the phone, like he's like looking inside the, the freezer and she like prepared all these meals for him, which just gives me the impression Hopper don't know how to cook. <laughs> interesting.
0: I didn't notice that. That's yeah. very interesting. That's yeah. very true. But also, does that just mean that every woman is in this film to cook food for Steven Seagal? Because literally they are there for that or sex or both.
2: They're also there to give him him cryptic clues in the form of
0: washing. Whoa, whoa.
1: After the uh, Segal sex scene, uh, they get a tip that they need to go uh, intercept the uh, Arab dude doing some arms deal or something at the Woodyard.
2: Yes. (laughs) Oh,
1: God. Yes, the Lumberyard. The Lumberyard. And so they show up. uh, The guy has already been killed, and uh, his face is all
0: scratched up. So we assume that it's the sinister Thai woman. But also, you know that something's going to go down because this lumberyard is set up suspiciously like a Call of Duty level.
1: So yeah, basically a, a, a classic setup for a let's introduce some swordsman into the scene. Yes. And so, of course, we have we have Seagal uh, and uh, his uh, token Asian partner. One of the funniest things in this scene is... You know, there's a bunch of fireworks and fight, blah, 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 fireworks, and I mean, not in a little sense. But um, at the end of them kicking the swordsman's ass, I'm sure both of you noticed this, that Sunti, who is, you know, this young, fit dude, dripping with sweat. Sagal looks like he has been sitting cross-legged in an armchair uh, reading, you know, uh, the New York Herald Tribune's uh, editorial section. Like, it, like he doesn't, he's not winded, he's not sweaty,
0: he's just, like, totally fine. Uh, that is one thing I was going to bring up at the end of this film, is literally everyone looks like they were filming this film in Thailand, except for Stephen Seagal. Yeah, they're just like, just turn every
1: fan at me? You guys do what you gotta do?
2: He doesn't sweat. Like, as I said before, like, this guy's like, his size, his unstoppability, he's like the golem of Craig. He's just like, <laughs> Like someone
0: summoned him, and he's not going to be stopped. But there are so many close-ups of his face where it is clear that his pores are bigger than God. Like they're just they're they all over his head, and you think they would produce sweat at some point, but no. Like Steven Seagal has like sort of a sheen that he adopts for every film. That sort of that is the most amount of sweat you will see for him him on that thing. Whereas even. Near the end, where his uh, token partner is praying at uh, his monastery, he's got a sweaty back, whereas Steven Seagal does not. Even though they're like twenty feet away from each other.
2: Listen, you hire Steven Seagal for one of your movies, you gotta read my writers, and my writers gotta have a fan on me at all times. And if you can't get a fan, can't get an air conditioner, you gotta have one of them ladies standing off, screen with one of them big leaves. <laughs>
1: Cut to uh, the situation with his daughter yeah, and she's her back. friend. Yeah, she's she back kidnapped. the Kind of like escalating a bit, and they start to make a second terrorist demand video, mm-hmm. during which they say, and I don't know, th- th- this is kind of like a stupid detail, but they say, if you don't do something in 76- 76
0: yeah. hours. Come on, dude. <laughs>
1: Come on,
2: dude. Get yeah, your social media game right. Did he actually say 76 and not 72? Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's yeah. like,
0: we're going to give you three days, but we're going to give you a bargain four more hours. I mean, it's going to take four hours for this to get to the U.S. I mean, your broadcaster pick it up. We understand that you guys gonna have an extra four hours, but also we should talk a, a whole bunch about these scenes here, which is his daughter in prison while he's trying to uh, free her, which at the beginning is her praying not to God, but to her deceased mother to find her father. And then he wakes up in the middle of the night and you can tell that Steven Seagal was on set that day because every time Steven Seagal is on set, you can hear him breathing through every scene and it is labored and it sounds like a 55-year-old man trying to get through these scenes. And I mean, Steven Seagal has not yet hit full buoyancy in this film, but he's still not a well man. And so that's the first one. The second one is them uh, filming the terrorist demand video. And then the third one is a very disturbing rape scene. Yeah, that was a bizarre thing to include. Just because, like...
2: These guys don't seem evil enough.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we've seen that before in, like, in The Patriot, for example. Where the uh, issue of them being uh, like the white supremacist organization is clearly added after the fact because the only time that's ever mentioned is during the newscast. And mm-hmm. then for the rest of the film, there's no swastika There's nothing at all. And so I feel like this is another instance where I'm not saying that this is like a Steven Seagal film thing, but like this is clearly a, we're not taking any chances with this film thing yeah. where it's like, just in case someone is like, oh, you know, The rebels. Maybe they have a reason to do this, even though it's an evil thing to do. They're like, we need to be a hundred fucking percent (laughs) sure that everyone hates these motherfuckers.
0: And then the two guys come into the room and speaking in like English that they learned on set that day. And God bless them for getting through this point. She killed. What was it? She killed my brother. And the other guy says, don't kill them. We need them or something like that. Drag the body out.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. He 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 takes it pretty well. Just, yeah. like, just kill this, this 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 bitty. Just fucking chopped my brother up. Like, just chill, bro. Drag your brother's body out and move on with it, <laughs> that, homie. It's like
2: the opposite <laughs> of the first Die Hard movie where John McClane kills uh, Carl's brother fairly early on in the movie, and he's pissed. and at yeah, shit. And that's like Carl's arc the movie trying to get revenge on him. And this is like they're about to set that up and like oh, we can't, we don't have enough time to develop that, so let's just have the brother be really passive about it. Now, I think this is the point where they go back to the club to confront Fitch, like his old, like, US buddy who, uh, the club lady friend of Steven Seagal's has like, realized, oh no, he's in league with the actual, like, bad people doing this, because I have his facts to prove it. (laughs) And like, yes, like, There's like a part where Fitch gets really angry over the phone. with this guy, like, why did you fax me this criminal information? This is kind of a
1: bit of a meta moment. But uh, I recently had to move offices. And so now in my office, there's like a bunch of random like office supply shit. So there's like one of those uh, like automatic coiler kind of machines. Oh, yeah. And there's also a fax machine, which I just always assumed was uh, unplugged. And so I'm working away, and all of a sudden, you're like, and I'm like, what the fuck? And this spam fax comes in. And it, it, it's, it's on that funny heat paper. And yeah. I was like, what the fuck is this? And so I, like, printed it out, and I brought it to my boss, and he's like, where did you get this from? And I was like, this is a fax. <laughs> like, it was,
2: it, yeah.
1: Spam fax? Yeah, yeah. So, the, the, so I, we used to get these a lot, actually. So I used to work at uh, United Colors of Benetton in the Rito Center. So this is around, like, the year 2000. When I guess people were still using fax machines, and so we would regularly get spam faxes. So it would be like a like a travel agency, and I'd be like, "This is a great deal," and we would get this fax, and we'd be like, "What the hell is this?" And we, like there would be several a week, where it's basically like again like spam faxes, like it just, like they'd subscribe you to like a
2: mailing list, and you yeah, get uh, this thing. I think the only weirder way to receive spam, I would say, by mail. But <laughs> you, we get you get junk mail all the time. But it's just like junk mail makes sense. Spam on email makes sense. Like unsolicited faxes.
1: It's barely below getting spam via pigeon. That's pretty. (laughs) It's pretty. That's the only thing that's weirder. And it might not even be that much weirder because at least pigeon is like a little postmodern
2: or something. Anyways, so they confront Fitch at the club along with the fingernail lady from before.
0: Because Fitch is pretty confident that this is the last thing Steven Seagal and his monk friend are ever going to see. Oh, yes. Is the is him and uh, the trans lady with the nails. Yeah. And actually, this this fight scene is a little bit remarkable, but it's shot in such a way because Steven Seagal was not on set that like it's all close-ups between stunt actors. And so nothing really happens until she's thrown through like a, like a light from an Ikea catalog yeah, and, those, and then all fabric kind of lights and it electrocutes her to death we're assuming because she stops moving and the monk uh, for like the third or fourth time in the movie someone has pointed a gun too close to somebody else and then the yeah. it makes you think back to lawmen where Steven Seagal goes and takes everybody for weapon retention training they should have uh, taken weapon retention training <laughs> with uh, Deputy Chief Seagal
2: <laughs> Reserve Deputy Chief Sorry.
1: <laughs> Reserve Deputy Chief <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: But yeah, they extract some information from Fitch after Fingernail Lady is uh, dead, presumably. But then Fitch tries to pull a fast one of him with a hold up, re- hold revolver he's got his boot. But no, Stevie Segal is too fast for him and puts one in his head.
1: Yeah. Odin, oh, I think we might have mentioned this uh, earlier, but the reveal of discovering that this strong Thai villainess is actually it's- a Thai lady boy that Seagal, before uh, killing her, basically. Turns out that it's actually a man. And he
2: said, I like you better when you were a bitch. It's like, <laughs>
1: proceeds to, it's like to,
2: to I thought the hangover part two is kind of the low point of making like shitty trans Thai lady <laughs> yeah. jokes. they yeah. like, oh no, oh no. Of course, Stevie Seagal could go lower. Yeah. But at this point, they figured out the whole of the plot that like, like, they kind of figured out at this point that the people who've kidnapped his daughter aren't actually like the rebel terrorists.
1: Yeah, and, and that's where... It like like for this for the first little bit it was definitely a Seagal film. Then it got sort of like kind of Asian and kind of not Seagal. and then it gets just thrown back into full Seagal gear, where it's like, oh, the local uh, paramilitary element—they're not actually the real villains. They're just a puppet of this sort of like a global security community. CIA and I say whatever, whatever. Oh. It's actually manipulating information and is uh tricking everyone into thinking that this uh, uh rebel group is responsible for
2: connecting bizarre. But in reality, it's this whole it, uh, it's framing worth, them. It's worth noting that Hopper and Sunti do end up meeting with that rebel terrorist leader, and like the way they figure out that it's not the terrorists doing it is like the terrorist leader says, No,
0: we aren't doing it. At least that was my gist of the scene when they spoke to him. Okay, but let's get to the meat of this movie. And the meat of this movie is Hopper, his assistant, and the main bad guy throughout this film, the military leader. Yes. All know something's going to go down as Hopper tries to rescue his daughter. And so they all go to pray to their gods. Yes. And each one of them has different gifts to give to them. The main bad guy's shaman has been creating a... Voodoo doll. A voodoo doll that has been uh, a host for maggots for a little while in front of the angriest statue in all of Thailand that they must have been able to find, right? Because it's just a man with four arms, and all arms have swords in them. And then Steven Skull goes and prays at uh, Yoda again, uh, and he's given a necklace. And then the other guy atones for his sin some more because... He hasn't
2: spent the last 10 years doing that already. Oh, but, like, some helpful information uh, Segal does receive through a chance encounter of a woman in the streets. Oh, my God. Oh, I forgot about that scene. You forgot about that scene because it is just on its face. Like, what? So, yeah, yeah like, yeah. he follows this woman into, like, a side street in downtown area, like, market area, follows her into this building where she, like, partially disrobes, starts... Mm. Ooh, Washing her uncensored chest, as like magical glyphs start appearing, <laughs> like <laughs> right below her shoulder blades. Yeah, and I'm not sure whose side she's on. If she is on anybody's side, Did, was was it a message
1: from the rebel guys? The, to the, where? Well, they here's could the find other thing: is is it's something?
0: not in English, and it's definitely not an Asian language. It's in like a fucking Led Zeppelin glyphs.
2: Yeah. Like yeah, this is like wait, did like the Welsh write this on stones? And <laughs> was yeah, it was so bizarre that like I we forgot to mention it because like I it the supernatural aspects of this movie they come out in full force towards the end, much as in the original season of True Detective. Uh,
0: Let <laughs> <laughs> let's get ready for like the final showdown here. So every man has their god behind them. And every god is prepared to fight, and so Steven Seagal descends with his. It's just the two of them. Yeah, it's and just two they're of them.
2: both armed with suppressed pistols. But something I noticed is that like the suppressor silencer, if you will, on his pistol is like very slightly drooping. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is any. I'm not sure if this is like the reality of like suppressed weapons, like when whether it's a weight thing, whether it's a mechanical thing. But just kind of starting to bend toward like a gonzo nose a bit.
0: Could it be that Steven Seagal is so tall that he needs it to droop a little bit? Because when he goes for a headshot, it goes above other people's heads. (laughs) Yeah, he's to account for the fight differential. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, the two of them truly impressively take down probably eight to 10 people. They kill a lot of guys, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. It just in like the when they first pull up to this place, they just Mm. and a ton of people fall. Uh, and then Stephen Seagal comes up against the army commander. Yeah, it's like this general
2: guy who's been shown up in a couple scenes at the movie and has been like vaguely threatening to his subordinates throughout and like on kind of chummy terms with the CIA dude who's been sent to track down Hopper. Uh, but yeah, th- this is where we get to the climactic fight of this movie.
0: And how does this fight start off any other way than? Him firing a bow at Seagal and Seagal firing bullets at him. But wait, this has happened with enough time, with enough distance from the Matrix coming out. So, of course, we're treated so to not only bullet time, but arrow time. The,
1: the, the, <laughs> the thing is hilarious about this scene is that, like, the conflict of uh, arrow versus bullet is ultimately resolved by Seagal just stepping around the corner and letting the arrow (laughs) hit the wall. It's not that it's just like, oh shit, this is my only option. Like If I don't stand in place and shoot my bullets at the oncoming uh, arrow, I'm going to die. He's just like, bam, bam, bam. Ah, fuck this shit. And just walks around the corner
0: and just leaves. Because uh, then the supernatural starts to happen. And all of a sudden, every single law that this film has established as true which is basically bullets are bad and kill you. Yeah. Nothing saves you from that is broken because voodoo is real, prayer is real, uh and chanting, a magical incantations is also real. Skull has been unstoppable from start to finish. It's just he's just wading
2: through people, ending their lives. He hasn't flinched at all throughout this movie. There's no development there cuz It's Steven Seagal. He has the final say on how his characters are depicted. Like It's telling that the only thing that briefly impedes him in this movie is literal magic from hell.
0: The problem about this is we're at the end of the film and all of a sudden we introduce that magic is real and Harry Potter, you are a wizard. (laughs) But it all of a sudden makes me want to spend more time in the belly of the beast universe because... Prayers are real because Steven Seagal's deceased wife suck him out to make sure that he got to Thailand to find his daughter. That's real. All of a sudden, so Christianity, Catholicism is real. I guess also Buddhism is real for their prayers, and also whatever thing the demon guy was praying to is also real. I want to spend more time where Steven Seagal can just pray people to death. So this like ties back to my theory that this was originally like a pilot
2: for a TV series, maybe yes. a couple episodes. And like, maybe the, the Ooh, belly man. of the beast expanded universe would have gone into the supernatural aspects. But here it's just kind of a, a deus ex machina
0: at the very end. Yeah. It does feel like belly of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, it's <laughs> it's, it's very... It,
1: it's funny, but earlier, you know, we're talking about... Man,
0: uh, all those Joss Whedon references are going to age super well now. Eh? <laughs> oh! <laughs>
1: machi machi. <laughs> it, it's funny that we we're, were talking about uh, Twin Peaks before and... It was interesting how the camera work to signify, I guess, the movement of an evil spell was very similar to uh, the sort of scenes when uh, Bob's kind of been released and he's flying through the forest. It was in the same way that the the evil shaman's magic is flying along and it's going, 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 and we don't know where it's oh. traveling. And all of a sudden, it's it's bested by this crew of Buddhists that are sort of praying.
2: <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's like, as they say in Twin Peaks, through the darkness of future's past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds, Seagal, walk with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anyways, so... All right, let's finish this up. Yes. So Seagal rescues his daughter. He's yes. uh, His Buddhist friend is shot uh, irreparably. Uh, even though we didn't see him get shot. No, just- but he did take on like nine guys from the military with just a pistol during a shootout. So, yeah, you're going to die. And he says, I'll see you. What is it like? I'll see you again in the next life or I'll see you. I'll see you around again or something like that. A very Buddhist in joke. And then (laughs) Seagal goes and spreads his ashes. And there's some very regrettable, as there has been throughout this entire film. There's some very regrettable sort of screen on screen. Yeah, we need like to fade in a shot of Iron Man
2: smiling over the rippling waters. But mm-hmm. I think we need to devote maybe at least two minutes to something that the movie itself never devoted devote to, which is Steven Seagal, a foreign national, has broken into this Thai general's house, shot up all of his men, killed the general himself, and at the end of the shootout is confronted by the aforementioned CIA agent and that
0: police chief he had a run in with. How is he not? Dan, I know what you're asking. Okay. Why are we worried about North Korea if this is going to happen? What? 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 (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like Trump's got it taken care of. Roll credits. (laughs) 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 It's in the bag. (laughs) Anyways, guys, would you recommend this film to people? Dan? I would recommend it in the sense that if you are,
2: if you want to, what is Steven Seagal? Like, what is the appeal of him, like his movies? Like, this kind of sums him up in a can like this kind of like faux enlightenment kind of vaguely mighty whitey not even vaguely mighty whitey thing like like he's an action star he's willing to do what's necessary to like get things done but he like he's also more thoughtful and liberal than say like John McClane or any given Jean-Claude Van Damme character and it's like a mixture of that and this man cannot be in the possible physical shape required for <laughs> This role. I wouldn't say this is for the appeal of uh Steve Seagull. It's like, who is Steven Seagull in a nutshell? Just put on Belly and the Beast. It's only an hour and a half long. If you like the films of Neil Breen, like Fateful Findings, think of that, but with a much higher budget and with a guy who actually did have a martial arts background with the same idea, like he is a super competent CIA or ex-CIA dude like who gets things done and he's off the grid and he doesn't play by anybody's rules ex- except his own, but he's also fighting for the people, man. I would give this movie two and a half stars out of five, maybe a three. Michael. I
1: think I would go back to, um, kind of what I was saying at the start where like on paper, this should be, should have been like the better exit wounds like, this is, like, the director with, you know, this uh, Hong Kong martial arts pedigree, this great filmography. Uh, like, this this should have been everything that was wrong or kind of corny or American or whatever, uh, like gentrified or whatever, about exit wounds resolved, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. And, like, I, I honestly would say that, like, the the best things about this film are done better in Exit Wounds. What? <laughs> no, I, I sincerely believe that. Like, I think no. I think the action's better. I think like I was gonna say the comedy is better, but there pretty much is no comedy in this film. I'd like I just feel like like there's no Anthony
0: Anderson. Yeah, exactly.
1: But it, like like the, 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 uh, Dan's point about like this is classic Seagal from like an ideological perspective. Yeah. Completely true. I completely agree with that. Uh, especially this late in his career, like it's fascinating to see those themes carried through for uh, you know over a decade. Like it's Here's the thing, though.
0: You say late in his career starts in ninety. We're in twenty seventeen. This is two thousand three. This is mid his career. Oh, this is like his revolver. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like. I mean, revival is not
1: an unfair thing, but I mean, like to... he's he's in straight to video territory yeah. at this point. So I mean, like as far as the uh, you know average Joe movie goer or as far as like uh, like a Hollywood big budget filmmaking is concerned, like I mean, he's he's old news. Yeah, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like just I, I feel like this one, it, it doesn't. It's one of those films where like on paper it's making certain promises and it doesn't live up to those promises. Mm. And so I would say that kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, especially like, like when we, I remember we watched the trailer and we're like, this is the next film we're going to do. And I was like, hells yes. Like this is hmm. going to be the best thing he's done. Like I was expecting this to be like the best Seagal film that we've seen. Yeah. And it's not even close. Like I, I would put this below... Not only Exit Wounds, but I put this below Glimmer Man. I, like, if I had to watch a film a second time, I would definitely rather watch Exit Wounds or Glimmer Man for sure. So I would put this pretty low. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, if it's out of five, I'm not even sure if I would give it two. I think I would give it like a one point five. Like, I think that like at, at this point in the podcast, we've watched
2: enough stuff that like I'd put this pretty low. Like, this would be low on my. It's worth noting, like just for my earlier rating, the only other Skulls film I've seen is about half of the Patriot on TBS in like two thousand one. So when I gave this movie a two point five or three out of five, understand that I don't have much of a standard to compare it to in his milieu.
1: The only thing I can express for a statement like that is jealousy, because <laughs> yeah, you're you're just you're uh, you're you're in for a world of good. Uh, that's all I can. It's like jealousy or envy. I both okay. Like I, 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 would pay money to like erase
2: exit wounds from my mind, just to just to watch it. Fresh oh, to again. watch it again. Like yeah, not like an internal sunshine thing. It's oh no,
1: no, like, <laughs> like I, 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 found it so enjoyable. I'd pay three hundred dollars to have it erased from my mind just to watch it because I went to that like basically like the, okay the the exit wounds comparison. It's not just the wire stunts thing. It's like going in with certain expectations and turning out very different. With this film, I was like, this is going to be the one. This is going to be awesome. This guy's got this great filmography. It's going to be cool. The trailer is fantastic. This is going to be great. Exit Wounds, I was like, it's fucking DMX in it. This is going to be the worst movie. And it was actually like it. it you, mean,
2: you mean to say that X gave it to you? He t- completely gave it to me.
1: So yeah, the, 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 I, I think this is a... This is a lesser Segal. I mean, I I shouldn't be this surprised. Maybe I don't know. Just like I I read too far into you know the director's filmography, and uh, I should have understood that at this point in his career, the, that kind of expectation was a little unwarranted. So yeah, I mean, like honestly, out of five, one point seven five max. Jeez.
0: Riley. Uh, so I have to completely disagree with you on this one. Uh, in that this is the movie I had been waiting for. I had been giving everybody every film that we watched, like, oh, this was, this was a great movie to watch if it's a bad movie, blah, 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 blah. No, they all pale in comparison to this because this is the great bad Seagal movie because it has such great production values all executed so poorly, like ah! so misguidedly. Like there is Seagal accelerating down as he slides through a stair not a staircase but like through, through floor, like like a bowling ball <laughs> and and it's it's everything that i want i watched this twice today and i love wow. every goddamn minute of it because the there's just so much wrong in the production of this film but it was all done to a high enough standard that It it was just so weird. It was like watching an episode of La Femme Fatale Nikita that just like went off the rails and had too many wire stunts. It was beautiful. It was it was everything I look for in a Steven Seagal film. And I didn't know that I needed that. I would like this rating to negate all the other times I told people to watch Steven Seagal films because those ones were crap. In terms of a great bad movie to watch, this is a great bad movie. Yeah. Like,
2: how how many other action movies end with evil being defeated through the power of prayer?
0: There's a third act twist where magic is introduced and is used effectively. It's beautiful <laughs> and it's unexpected and it keeps you on the edge of your seat because, oh my God, this was not something that actually was like there was no checkoff spell that was happening throughout this film. There was just at one point, a man uses voodoo and another man is injured. Uh, and then a third man starts chanting and sets that voodoo thing on fire in the first man's hand. It blows the mind. It is like our nine and three-quarters station of disbelief that you have to suspend. It's beautiful, Michael.
1: I, I mean that's point. like the this idea that it's like a Hong Kong actions like Southland Tales that it's like such a <laughs> such a beautiful failure you know i i i hadn't I hadn't considered it from that perspective, and it's kind of like everything that you're saying builds off of all of my rationales so perfectly that it's just like like that there's every reason why this should have worked. Uh, both based on precedent, but also based on the filmmaking itself, and so the fact that some things were executed so well and other things were executed so like disastrously is fascinating. I like I, I, you're right. I completely agree with that. It's just like like the, the the like yeah like the 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 opening first shots of the film. I was like, oh shit, this is gonna be good. Like it was like like it was really cool, like, like neat angles and stuff like that. And it was it was kind of like a like a shitty like like one car wire or something. I was like, oh, it's gonna be neat. And then yeah, then he's uh, gliding across a a hallway floor. Just think of the squib
0: budget. Yeah. Oh my god.
1: You're right. This is an interesting perspective. I mean, like I I think this is probably like the first Segal film where this rationale is really applicable. Mm -hmm. Because like like the the, like me going back to like exit wounds. Like I mean, there is something. Uh like there's almost like a self-awareness to the corniness, which I think is clearly lacking from this film. Like, I mean, there's there's no humor. Like, like, like I was saying before, that the when I was saying, oh, one thing I like about Expo is the humor. In this, like, I mean, it's like oppressively serious, which makes the fact that it's it's so humorous at times that much more humorous. Yes. So you,
2: you're right. The, the, that, that, that is a, that, that's a effective. I, I hadn't considered. That's the thing. Like when, when it comes to bad movies, I will prefer them to have like, to be as serious yes. as possible. Yes. Because mm-hmm. like with humor, you can kind of dis- emotionally, it allows like the, the actors to kind of emotionally distance themselves from the content. Like, yeah, this is trash. but we're aware of it. You know, it's the same problem I have with a lot of like the sci-fi original movies, like Sharknado, whatever. But like, no, I the beautiful mess that is this movie. Uh ah, no, beautiful mess is kind of a misnomer because skull ain't great to look at. <laughs> it's no, like the mess
0: of <laughs> okay, this- all right, come on. Okay, I uh, shouldn't have touched him first. <laughs> that is Mike. <laughs> Guys, I've got a suggestion for the next movie that we do. So it was. It also came out in 2016. It's called The Perfect Weapon. It's set in the near future where Steven Seagal is a dictator. Oh, I've heard this is like one of his best late period films. Really? Yeah. I'm psyched. Are you guys good with that? Yeah. Yeah. Come Wait, on.
2: How many How many times in your life do you get to see Steven Seagal play a brutal dictator?
0: Dan, you want to come back for it? Yeah, I'd say I did. <laughs> Perfect. All right, we'll see you again in two weeks, guys. Thanks for tuning in.